Erev Tov, good evening, how's everyone doing? We are going to do something a little different today than what we've done in the past, and I think that it actually has its own, its own style and its own flavor. Let me just find the right page before I get too far. I want to have the handout that I sent out by PDF, uh, either in email or if you go to the Google Classroom, you'll see it as, a, as attached to the Zoom invitation. You'll see a handout there as well. All right, so we are going to take a tangent that is based off of the last three or four shiurim that we've done together, all about innovation in halakha, flexibility of halakha, and it's different. What I'm doing today is very different than what we do elsewhere. I'm going to try something else just for today to see if we can do those additional sources of different pieces of Talmud and perhaps piece together a picture of this concept of flexibility in halakha, innovation in halakha, and how it sits with some earlier sources and the different values suggested in those sources. I don't have a beginning and end point today. Today is one of those, it's a real Bedamidash. We're just going to learn through this together and see where it takes us. I have some ideas that I definitely wish to share based on the sources that are in front of us. But really, I am... I am putting myself out there wherever HaKadosh Baruch Hu will sweep us is B'zat Hashem where we shall end up. Last week Rabbi Chaim David Halavi mentioned to us that En gemishut ke-gemishuta There is nothing more flexible than the flexibility of Halakha. And that sentence, as shocking as it is, was backed up by a number of examples of Rabbi Chaim David Halavi. We then had a few examples from previous weeks that Rabbi Yosef Masaz taught us about how things change in Halakha. Rabbi Uziel suggesting that that should be a primary focus of a posek who deals with Halakha to be able to deal with the changes that exist in the realm of Halakha as well. He mentioned a few things that could change Halakha. Shifting social norms, life events that cause changes. In fact, Rabbi Chaim David Halavi, one of his proofs last week that halakha changes based on, on the circumstances of life. One of Rabbi Chaim David Halavi's proofs was about Aaron Kohen. Aaron changed a halakha that Moshe Rabbeinu taught him. Moshe said one thing, Aaron did an entirely different thing based on his own logic. And when he asked why it was that he changed, the first thing he pointed at was that something happened in his life that caused him to be a mourner. It caused his halachic status to change. And therefore he felt on his own accord, there's a halakha that a Kadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe Rabbeinu to change. Now later, the Chachamim say, hey, slow down, don't worry, it wasn't actually a change of halakha. Moshe Rabbeinu had heard that halakha from God on Hal Sinai, but he forgot it, and he only remembered when Aharon reminded him. Nonetheless, says Rebbechaim David Halavi, whether or not it was originally divine or not, Aharon didn't know that it was divine. Aharon reached that conclusion, a divine conclusion, through human logic. And that's the message from that story. Today I wanted to take us somewhere connected, but different, and perhaps seemingly contradictory. And that is to the Talmud, to a number of sources that have to do with Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukanus. Does anyone know anything about Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukanus? I've asked you about different rabbis in the past, like Rabbi Yosef Masas, uh, Rabbi Uziel, 
This one is straight out of the Talmud, so you've had a few thousand years to get to know him. Rabbi Eliezer of Hukanu, somebody, does someone here know anything about him? I'm sure the Rabbanit doesn't. Rabbi Eliezer, like the, just the one as a, like we have a family name, just the, uh, just the one that is mentioned as Rabbi Eliezer. Yes. The one with the oven. Very good, okay. So this is the same, very good. Okay, we, we can count on you. The same Rabbi Eliezer, who is famously mentioned in the story of Tanur Osh al uh, the famous oven, the argument between him and the sages of Israel, uh, and then the trees get uprooted and the walls of the Ben Midrash fall down and a voice comes out from heaven and still he's wrong. Because no matter what he says, the rabbis say that the majority rules with them. Do you guys remember this story that uh, Huga's referring to? You want to maybe tell us a little bit about the story from the beginning? So, if I remember correctly, because I haven't studied it for a while, is a uh, it is a, an issue regarding the, um, I think the kashrut of an oven, and Rabbi Dizer, there was a question regarding if you like if it's an oven made out of different pieces, if you basically uh, dismantle the oven and then be, uh, like build it back, is it is it like is it, does that change the status of uh, the oven? And Rabbi Dizer was determined that it was the case, but he was uh, he was by himself more or less on the issue, uh, and so he, he basically tried to, to bring about like to convince through miracles. Like, uh, well, if I'm incorrect, if I'm correct, let the tree grow out of nothing, and even the, the voice of God that says, "Oh, you're you're right, Rabbi Dizer," and uh, still the it's. Uh, Rabbi Shmuel, who is determined in saying, you know, it doesn't matter, it's majority of the Hamim rule, it doesn't matter if you can bring miracles about. Uh, I think it was like he said something, um, he, ref- he refers to the, um, to, to some uh, some passage in the Chumash that says the Torah does not come from the sky, it's... Um, it's not in heaven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I actually... <laughs> It's funny, of all the stories, I actually didn't bring this story about Rabbi Elizabeth and Hukanus because that entire story surrounding the Tenorosh Shalachanai has such tremendous ramifications on how we look at halakha and how we view halakha. If we wanted to dedicate ourselves to, to that story, you'd have to, Mamash, take at least a few days, if not weeks, to, I'm not exaggerating at all, to discuss the, the implications or the ramifications of that story. Essentially what you have is one rabbi stating an opinion. And then when the rest of his colleagues disagree with him, he invokes miracles. Now, you should know, Rabbi Yosef Masas in his book, Nechalat Avot and Parkei Avot, is adamant that none of these were miracles, but they were all sleight of hand, used as a manipulation tactic by Rabbi Eliezer to manipulate his colleagues. But that's not at all the pshat of the Talmud, at all. The Talmud seems to be straight out that these things are miracles. Now, if you want to understand them as an Agadah, in general, that's already up to you. I'm, I'm not here to tell you the uh, fact as much as the way the Talmud viewed this story. When it comes to his miracles, uh, he uproots a tree from... The, if I'm right, let this tree uproot itself from the ground. If I'm right, let the river flow backwards. And the river flows backwards. And the rabbis still admit that, he's, that they will not admit that he's right. Ultimately, a voice comes out from heaven and says... Uh, the halakha is like Rabbi Eliezer, the, the halakha is like him. And the rabbis look at this uh, voice of heaven and they say, Lo hi. We don't care what you say. Once you gave the Torah on Har Sinai to the Jewish people, you have lost your right to tell the Jewish people how to understand the Torah. And at that moment, this voice which comes out of heaven says, Nitzchuni banai nitzchuni. 
you have defeated me, my sons, you have defeated me. And it's a fascinating conversation in terms of how do you use miracles to prove your point. By the way, that even the miracles themselves, they weren't quite certain that Rabbi Eliezer was right. So you'll, you'll see that, for example, he at a certain point says, if I'm right, let the walls of the Bet Midrash cave in. And the walls of the Bet Midrash caved in halfway. They caved in, and they say halfway out of the honor of Rabbi Eliezer and halfway to protect the dignity of the scholars he was arguing against. How do you learn from miracles? Rabbi Yoshua, that's correct. But it's Rabbi Yoshua and all the Chachamim. Meaning, he's, who is Rabbi Yoshua? Rabbi Yoshua is, is Haomed Barosh. He's Rabban Gamliel is with him. If you recall, if you recall, Masechet Derech Eretz. Have you ever heard of Masechet Derech Eretz? Someone studied here Masechet Derech Eretz? You, you probably never got a chance because nobody studies Masechet Derech Eretz. It's found in the back of, if you have like a regular Vilna Shas, in the back of Masechet Eduyot, Hoyot, over there in the back, there are a bunch of Masechtot Ktanot, small tractates. And one of them is a two-part tractate, Derech Eretz Derech There's a, a two Masechet Derech Eretz. And Masechet Derech Eretz, well, it's exactly what it sounds like. All kinds of teachings about Derech Eretz, proper etiquette, manners, the way people are supposed to act. Not at all like Perkei Avot. Perkei Avot is not a book of... Uh, Ethics, actually, it's more of a book of chasidut. Our rabbis always refer to Perkei Avot as Mirta de Chasiduta. The things that are found in Perkei Avot are not law. They're, they're extra to the law, which is its own concept. And what does that mean exactly? But you can never really bring a point to halakha from Perkei Avot. That's not what it was written for. It's not what it was intended for. Here, it's not so much a spiritual ethics as much as, you know, morality. How a person is meant to act, how a person is meant to speak, how a person is meant to eat, how a person should sleep. There's a famous teaching there that you may have heard quoted many times. It's invoked often in a synagogue setting. You know, when I was in yeshiva in Baltimore, so there were certain things that they did there that they were very adamant must be done by everybody in the yeshiva. They would invoke this phrase, Minhag ha-yeshiva, this is a custom of the yeshiva. And no matter who you were or what you were or where you come from, you were not allowed to deviate from what they decided was Minhag ha-yeshiva. I mean, Hagi Yeshiva could be something as petty as, you know, there was a, um, there was a few Minyanim, but one of them had a baby that was, had a Brit, and they decided that the Minhag Yeshiva is the rest of the Minyanim don't say Tachanunim either. Fine. It's not such a big deal. And then they had other Minhagim. I'm using the word lightly, obviously, because Minhag has a legal definition, not actually this definition, but they had Minhagim such as having to wear a black hat or else you were not allowed into the Bet Midrash. So, there were, there were moments where, if for whatever reason, you would forget your hat in the dormitory. You weren't allowed to pray with a minyan. You had to pray outside of the Ben-Milan. They would invoke minhag ha There were other things, such as uh, the accent in which you were allowed to lead services, or how you put your talit over your head. You weren't allowed to, as a single bachul, even though we wore talitot, we were saladim, you were not allowed to cover your head, because minhag ha they would invoke this very often. All those things were petty details for me. I think one of the places I struggled the most with Minhag HaYeshiva was on a three-day Yom Tov. So you're outside of Israel, so imagine Yom Tov is going to be a thir- Wednesday night, Thursday, Thursday night, Friday, and then Shabbat, or the other way around. You know, Shabbat, and then we're going to a two-day holiday. The Minhag HaYeshiva was that you were not allowed to shower at all for those three days. Now, I'm, I don't mean to be gross, so forgive me, but I'm saying something gross, but... You have to remember in the yeshiva, nobody brushed their teeth on Shabbat or Yom Tov. Nobody uses soap on Shabbat or Yom Tov. Nobody wears deodorant on Shabbat or Yom Tov. And on top of that, 
they have a minhag not a shower on Shabbat and Yom Tov. So, so already by day two, I mean, you're talking about a, a thousand men in a yeshiva, you know, I don't even know. Sorry for the ladies here, I apologize. But a thousand people that are in one room together for a 17-hour tefillah, I don't know what it is, and you have to be there with everybody else. So, you know, in the middle of the night, whenever it was, we would go sneak into the shower, break the minhag yeshiva. But uh, that was a limit how much minhag I could, I could accept in one place. How did I get there? Minhag hamakom is invoked often in Masechet Dech Eretz. It says, "Leolam adam." A person should never change from what people are doing around them. So, "Aliyah Yoshev ben Haomedim, Aliyah Omed ben Yoshevim." You shouldn't stand among those who are seated. You shouldn't sit among those who are standing. You should always do what other people do. There's also a famous teaching that comes from from Masechet Dech Eretz. Everything the Balabai tells you, everything the host tells you, you must do, except for. Except for, except for leave. You have to listen to your host about anything they tell you except for get out of my house. Why about that you don't have to listen? That's already a good conversation. But over there, the Gaon of Vilna has a note that any acceptable thing the Balhabai tells you to do, you do. You don't listen to everything they tell you. Only things that are within the norm, uh, the boundaries of normality and proper etiquette. In Masechet Derech Eretz, there's a story about Philosoph. Philosoph is, I mean, he's a philosopher, but he's a non-Jewish, idol-worshipping priest. And he must have had a house in Eretz Israel, and Rabban Gamliel, in Rabbi Yoshua, were walking together with Chachmei Israel past the house of Philosoph. And one of these rabbis turns to his friend, and I'm, I'm quoting by heart, so forgive me if I don't get all the words right. And he says to him, uh, Maybe we should go up to visit our friend, Philosoph. It's very clear there that Philosoph is not a philosopher that you think. It's an actual priest of idol worship. Maybe we should go visit our friend, the idol worshiper. They refer to him as our friend. Meaning it was a person who had shared ideas with them in the past and who they considered friendly with. Imagine finding today Chachmei Israel. Let's go visit the idol worshiper, our friend. And so they decided to go to the home of Philosoph. Now Philosoph is sitting in his study, in his home. And it's very interesting, the story that takes place after this. It's meant to teach you a lesson there. If you remember, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the Talmud says that a person, a sone'ani, I hate people who enter a home without knocking on the door first. Do you recall this teaching of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? There's a, 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 a hatred that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai has to people who burst into other people's homes first. First you knock and then you enter. This was a minhag derech eretz that Chachmei Israel were very particular about. You want to talk about minhagim? This is a real minhag that Jewish people have. To knock on the door before you enter. To make your presence known before you startle someone in their own home. You know, I would recall that I had rabbis who were very particular about this, even in dormitories that they owned. That they would make sure that, you know, I had a rabbi who was a, it was a rabbi in the dormitory. And part of his job was to, you know, to catch people doing all kinds of things they shouldn't do, illegal contraband. Uh, novels they didn't want you to have, or uh, God forbid, music they didn't want you to listen to, or radios, you know, such terrible things that, that you might possibly indulge in uh, after hours in the yeshiva. And his job was to come in and surprise people and catch things. That was his job. But he would wear a keychain like this, and it would, the whole way down the hallway, you could hear him coming right from the. I once asked him, so, you know, if your job is to catch people, why do you wear a keychain that lets everyone know you're there? He says, because I'm a rabbi, and these are students in Eshiva, and they're in a dormitory. I want people to know that I'm coming. I don't want to come in on somebody, they're getting changed, they're not dressed, they're in bed. Everyone should know that I'm coming. It's, it's my obligation 
in Judaism to let people know that I'm here. Now, if it defeats the purpose of why I'm here, okay, that's already, I'll have to deal with those ramifications. That was a minhag dech eretz, the tamdech hamim had. So they knock on the door once. And when a philosoph hears someone knock on the door, he immediately starts to get dressed. He hears a second knock, he already puts on his clothing. And the third knock, he says, these must be Chachmei Israel. He opens up the door. And now he's faced with a Der Eretz dilemma. So he knew that they were rabbis just by the fact they knocked on his door and didn't come in without asking. So this week I had someone come into my home without asking. I, uh, I don't know, they just burst into my home. It was a pretty unusual situation in my house. And then they got very upset at me that I, I was uh, upset at them why they came into my house without even letting me know that they were there. They were just, I find someone in my kitchen. So, philosoph um, looks outside and he sees here Rabban Gamliel. What position does Rabban Gamliel occupy in the Jewish people? Do you know? Wasn't he the, the Nasi? The Very prince? good. Nasi. He was the Nasi. He was the prince. He was the prince. And then you have Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Yoshua is standing with Chachmei Israel. Why is he with all the Chachmei Israel? What is his job? The Sanhedrin. Very good. He's the head. He's Rosh Rabbanim. He's the chief rabbi of the rabbis. Now Philosoph opens the door. The rabbis have extended him Derech Eretz by... by knocking on his door, now he needs to deal with this dilemma. What's his dilemma? The honor, who is going first? Yes, okay, yeah, Mary, what do you say? Invite them in or keep them outside. Okay, invite them in or keep them outside. Well, now with social distancing, that's not even a question anymore. But this, uh, this question was, who do I say hello to first? If I say hello to the prince first, I'm offending the chief rabbi and all the other rabbis. And if I say hello to the chief rabbi first, I'm offending the prince of Israel. Who do I say hello to first? Rather, he says, Shalom Aleichem, L'Rabbi Yoshua U'l'Chachmei Israel. Hello to you, Rabbi Yoshua and the sages of Israel. U'l'Rabban Gamliel Ha'omed Barosh. And to Rabban Gamliel, who is the leader of them all, the prince of them all. In this way, he managed to greet everyone properly without offending anyone, because everyone would agree that Rabban Gamliel was the head, but also he was able to respect the chief rabbi and the rest of the rabbis there. This exchange of Der Eretz is, it's, it's beauty. It's, it's, when you read stories like this in the Talmud, rabbis analyzing Min Der Eretz, how do we treat people? How do we speak to people? How do we, how do we correspond with people in a way that is fitting the Jewish people? It always makes me very proud when you read such things. So here you find Rabbi Yoshua, Whenever you see Rabbi Yoshua mentioned, you should know that he's representing more than just himself. In the story of the oven here, he's representing all of the sages of Israel against Rabbi Eliezer. The ramifications are, are tremendous. Here you have the famous majority rules. There's a majority versus a minority. The majority crushes the minority. How does that rule work? Well, you can tell me that the majority is always right. The minority is never, uh, is never the correct opinion. You deal with the fact that Akadosh Baruch Hu gets involved. Heaven gets involved, literally gets involved in the story through miracles, through voice. Then you have the chutzpah. It's seemingly audacious of the rabbis to say, hey, HaKadosh Baruch back off. This is not your Torah anymore. We don't care what you have to say. And the craziest part of the whole story is nitzchuni banai nitzchuni. Okay, my sons, you're right. And then HaKadosh Baruch seemingly backs off. The whole story, the whole story is, is an unusual 
story at best. And there's, but there, if one starts to dig into the story, you really reach many big conclusions that are very helpful in Limut Torah in the future, but I really didn't come prepared today for this story. So of all the stories of Rabbi Eliezer thank you Hugo for bringing up that one. Now, there's another story of Rabbi Eliezer Does anyone can tell me about where he came from, how he grew up, who he was? He had, um, like, he had to leave his dad, so I mean, he didn't give him any money, and he had to, like, eat earth on his way to Yeshiva and all that. Very good. Who was his father? I mean, who can was yeah, but what, do you remember, like, what the story was exactly? Uh, he was really rich or something. He had money, he had a lot of fields, many, many fields. And his son wasn't happy in any of those fields, so his son runs away to Yeshiva. Do you remember who he goes to study by? No. He wants to study in Yerushalayim. Yeah, very good, yeah. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. He goes to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. That's where he studies. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai had a famous yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Some of the uh, rabbis say about um, uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai that if it wasn't for him, I think, Avod Rabbi Natan, if you look at Avod Rabbi Natan, it says that if it wasn't for the thousands of students of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, we wouldn't have Torah and the Jewish people today. He was single-handedly responsible for educating thousands of Jews. Now what happens is, that uh, these Jews, uh, this is the one who comes to Yerushalayim. He's coming after 48 hours of walking from wherever. You can imagine, if you had to guess, that Rabbi uh, Elizabeth father didn't have farms in Jerusalem. He had farms somewhere on the outskirts, uh, you know, in the middle of Israel, the Merkaz Aret. So uh, if you've ever landed in Tel Aviv airport and then taken a taxi to Jerusalem, you go through many fields and then you start climbing your way up Yerushalayim. To do that by foot, took uh, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukunus about two days. Give me one moment, please, because I just something popped up here. He finally makes it to Yerushalayim. When he comes to greet Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai realizes that his mouth smells horrendous. He hasn't eaten in two days. And he blesses him that he realizes it was a struggle for him to get here to the Shiva. He blesses him that just like your mouth smells so terribly, that one day the words of your mouth will influence the whole world for the good. Ultimately, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukunus becomes a student of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai and becomes one of the greatest Chachamim to live in Yerushalayim in that time period. The father of Rabban Yochanan ben, uh, of Rabbi Leza ben Hukunus, he came to Yerushalayim, you know, it's been about 10 years since he last saw his son or spoke to his son, and like any good Amharits, didn't bother looking for his son, the brothers didn't bother looking for the son, there, there's much commentary about why these siblings and father were so, so insistent that this son shouldn't be part of their family anymore, there's a certain hatred that ignoramuses have to educated people. Uh, that Amei Haaretz have towards Chachamim. You find this with Rabbi Akiva. Do you remember Rabbi Akiva? Before Rabbi Akiva becomes a Chacham, what does he say about Torah scholars? Do you remember his famous sentence? Very good. My mother is correct. I, if you just give me a Tamil Chacham so I can bite him like a donkey bites someone. Why a donkey? What are the donkey doing? Why not like a dog? Rather, what are the Mephashim they say? A dog bites, but a donkey bites and breaks the bone also at the same time. That's how much Rabbi Akiva hated Tamil Chamim. There's a certain hatred that exists in the world between those who are educated and those who are not. And that's also another conversation perhaps for a different time. It has 
has many ramifications for what the world we're living in is going through, always has been going through, but especially is going through today. This father, Hukunus, comes to write a will by the Bedin of Abani Yochanan Zakai. And part of his will is that he wishes to exclude his lost son, Eliezer, from any part of his will. At that point in time, when Yochanan Zakai was making this big feast, in which many Torah scholars were there, especially many of them that were involved in this, I believe Nakdimon ben Gurion was there, a number of the scholars that were involved during the times of the destruction of the Second Temple. And he offered Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukanus to speak, and the whole crowd was, was blown away by the things he spoke about. By the way, what he spoke about was very relevant to the story. If we have time one day to learn more Agadot, the speech that Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukanus gives there has its own ramifications. But after it's over, Rabban Yochan ben Zakai tells this man, why do you want to exclude your son from your will? And he says, well, you know, he left it. Yeah, such a stupid son that I have. And he said, you know, your stupid son is the one that is speaking right now. He's the one that just let on. He was so embarrassed, Hukanus, that he obviously put his son back in his will. And Shalom and Israel. These are the humble beginnings of Rabbi Eliezer Hukanus. He starts off as a boy that comes from a home that was not educated, did not receive a Torah education. When he wanted more, his father didn't want him to have more, wanted him to stay in the family business. He runs away from his home, goes to Yeshiva, becomes one of the sages of Israel. And only many years later in his life, does his family ever accept the fact that his life choices actually led him to a good place. I think there are a lot of people who struggle with life in general. But one of the harder struggles in life is when the people who we love don't love the choices that we've made. If it's the choices we've made in terms of religion, if it's the choices we've made in terms of work, if it's the choices we've made in who we've married or what type of children we have raised. And there are many things that we go through that are hard enough as they are. But there's an extra crisis that's added on to what happens when my family doesn't approve of me. Now there's some people who don't care. I mean, I'm sure deep down they care, but they've lived a life where they just reject their family back and they keep moving forward. But there are people who spend their whole life waiting if they'll ever see that moment. Will they ever be validated? Will they ever be accepted for who they are, what they are, in, in the eyes of those who they love? And I could say that Rabbi Lezab and Hukanus definitely reached that place. And there's what to discuss about the relationship between a Tamil Chacham and a family of Amei Haaretz, but not for right now. I didn't come to tell you the life story of Rabbi Lezab and Hukanus. Today I came to discuss the methodology, the teaching style, the approach that Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukanus had to Halakha in general. If you look with me on page 5 in the PDF that I sent out, source 2, it's the first source in the additional sources section. You see where I am? Yeah. Okay. Tanur Rabbanan, our rabbis taught. By the way, the English translations are copied from Safaria, from the Rabbi Steinzelt edition. He just passed away recently. So sometimes the English is not exactly a translation of the Hebrew because what they do, like many translations, they write both the words that are literally translated and then fill in the gaps, but they do that in two different fonts. Uh, so you know what's literal translation and what is not. Uh, I can't do that when I copy and paste things. So just know that if you were to look at the original, some of these words are not actually what's found in the Hebrew. Tanur Rabbanan, our rabbis taught. 
Maaseh Berbi Liezer. There's a story told about Rabbi Liezer. Sheshavat Begalil Ha'elyon. Who stayed in the upper Galilee. Vishaluhu Shaloshim Halachot Bilchot Sukkah. And they asked him 30 questions in the laws of Sukkah. So it's coming up, the holiday is coming up, whatever it is. They want to know uh, relevant halachot about Sukkah. amar lehem, shamati. amar lehem, no shamati. About 12 of the 30 halachot, he said, I heard the answer. Meaning, I've heard the answer from my rabbis. 18 of them, he said, I didn't hear the answer. Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yudah, Omer, Chiluf Advarim. amar lehem, shamati. amar lehem, lo shamati. And Rabbi uh, Yudah heard a different variation. That he heard 18 of the answers, but 12 of them he didn't hear. Bottom line is, some of the answers he says he heard, some of the answers he says he didn't hear. Amrulo, they said to him, Kol Tell us, Rabbi Yezim and Hokunus, all the Torah you teach, you only teach things that you've already heard before? Meaning, are you the type of teacher who only shares things that you heard from your rabbi? Well, you don't have any original thought for yourself. You're stuck in this place where you can only teach the teachings of your rabbi. What, you, you don't know to teach things on your own? So, okay, fine, you didn't hear 12 of the answers. So tell us 12 answers that you didn't hear. Amar lahem, he tells them, You are now forcing me to say something that I've never heard from my rabbis. And then he makes the following list. And you have to see here, if you've listened to the, some of the shiurim I've been teaching lately in the Shavidi Bet Midrash on Agadatah, and the importance of understanding Agadah and, and delving into Agadah. And we're trying to do like five or six pieces of Agadah in one day. It's almost impossible. But to just know that there are more questions than there may be answers, and you have to dig deeper into the words that are used and why the story is even being told in the first place. The answer to the question that is asked of Ezra is even stranger than, than anything you can imagine. He says, now you're forcing me to say something I didn't hear from my rabbis. And instead of answering their questions, meaning now I'll answer your halakhic questions that I didn't hear from my rabbis, he goes on to seemingly brag about himself. Never was there a person who came to the Bet Midrash before me. And I never fell asleep in the Ben Midrash. Not intentionally, I didn't sleep the whole night in the Ben Midrash, and I didn't even fall asleep once in the middle of a shiur, or in the middle of a, a five-hour tefillah. I never fell asleep in the Ben Midrash. V'lo yashanti bevet midrash By the way, minastam, there were no tefillot in the Ben Midrash, because in this time period in history, there were houses of study and houses of prayer. V'lo hinachti adam bevet midrash v'yatsati. And there never was a time that I left the Ben Midrash and there was still someone in the Ben Midrash. So he was always the first to be there. He was always awake and present when he was there. And he says, I never in my life was the first one to leave. Not only was I not the first one to leave, I was always the last one to leave. I never spoke about idle things, about things that were not Torah inside of the Ben Midrash. And I've never said something that I did not hear from my rabbi in my entire life. So now, Rabbi Eliezer seems compelled to brag about himself a little bit. Like, you know, I've never done this, I've never done that. I've always been in the Bedemilash, I'm always there first, I'm always the last one there. And I've never said something 
that I never heard from my rabbi before. What is going on in this story? What, what's happening here? Why, why this list of things? He could have just said, yeah. I mean, he could have just skipped the whole middle part and said, yes, I have never said something that I never heard from my rabbi. That could have been the response. Meaning, he could have gone from, have you, what, you don't ever teach original ideas? He could have said, no, I never say things I didn't hear from my rabbi before. What is the purpose of this whole list that is here? There's a commentary in the Talmud, which, yes, has its fair share of um, Kabbalistic insight that may not be relevant or practical to all who don't understand the concept. I mean, sometimes this commentary will go on a tangent that unless you're very well versed in Kabbalah, doesn't make much sense. But there are jewels, much diamonds inside of this commentary in the Talmud, and I don't understand, for the life of me, why it's not more commonly used when understanding and studying the Talmud. There's a commentary, commentary of the Ben Ishchai, Rabbi Yosef Chaim Baghdad, on the Talmud. Actually, two commentaries. Uh, but they're normally sold together as a set. And many of the Agadot of the Talmud are explained properly through the writings of the Ben Ishchai. So this comes from the commentary of the Ben Yehoyada in the, the Talmud, Masech HaTzukah. So he's commenting on the story. A person has never reached the Bet Midrash before me. We must ask a question, says Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad. But right now I'm dealing with the Benish Chai's family. Uh, something that one day I'll share here, I'll, I'll present here probably in this form. You know, we've been dealing in the past with questions of Torah study for women and how much women are engaged in mitzvot, Torah mitzvot, and things like that. Recently, I've been digging into, with the help of a number of colleagues who are, are much more well-versed in this particular area, the study of Torah by women in Sephardic communities. And, I mean, you always have exceptions, and exceptions to rules in every community, so all across the board, in every Jewish community, Ashkenazim and Sephardim, you're going to find Talmidot, Chachamot, or Talmidot, Chachamim, depends how you want to use that word. Why would there be a difference? Why would you either say Talmidah Chachama or Talmidat Chachamim? Anyone know? What's the correct word for a female Torah scholar? Or what's the difference between Talmidah Chachama or Talmidat Chachamim? One she is smart and the other one she is taught by rabbis. Very good. So when you say the word Talmid Chacham, the, the student of a Torah scholar, the plural of that should not be Talmidei Chachamim, but should be, uh, it, it, it's, it's Talmidei Chachamim, meaning you will find in the writings of the Rambam, for example, that he always refers to a Torah scholar as a Talmid Chachamim. He doesn't refer to him as a Talmid Chacham, but as Talmid Chachamim, meaning the student of scholars. Not that he's a smart student, meaning a, a Talmid Chacham is one who is a student of a Chacham. And therefore, if we're going to talk about female Torah scholars, in the circles of the Rambam at least, the suggestion would be, to not say Talmidah Chachama, but to say Talmidat Chachamim, a woman who's a student of Chachamim. And that would then be a, a much more fitting title. In any case, the family of the Ben Ishchai, and the connected families to the Ben Ishchai, so you're talking about the Somech family, Rabbi Abdullah Somech. There's a famous Iraqi family related to both the Ben Ishchai and to the Somech family, which has very strong roots in the UK, or had at least very strong roots in the UK. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Yes. Okay, so then say something. 
there's that famous Sassoon family, uh, which uh, is an Iraqi Indian Jewish family that has tremendous roots in the United Kingdom. And all of these families had daughters, wives, mothers, granddaughters, every, who, who were tremendous Tamil al-Khamun, unbelievable Torah scholars. And it wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't something that happened. You know, probably the Jews of Baghdad have the highest concentration of female Torah scholars in the last few generations. It's a, it's a, something that needs to be researched properly, needs to be understood in the context. I can give a few simple reasons for why, uh, in the sense that in Iraq, in Baghdad especially, all the young children went to a local public Jewish school. It was uh, the public Jewish school was where they were taught how to read Hebrew, were taught how to write Hebrew, and that, on a public level, was only open to boys. Boys until the ages of 9 or 10. After that, if you wanted your child to study more, there were yeshivot, or tutors that you paid privately. There were children of a higher economic class that didn't go to the regular yeshiva. They went to a special yeshiva that was meant for people who could afford to pay the tuition for those schools. And in those schools, those schools were co-ed for boys and girls until the ages of 9 or 10, which taught them how to read and write Hebrew. And therefore, the upper and middle class families of Baghdadi Jewry who could afford to send their children to a Jewish school, inevitably were sending their children to a school that also accepted their daughters to study. And therefore, you already have the beginnings of female Torah scholarship because those women were able to afford the, the tuition, the price of uh, Torah study. And then you have families like the Somek family, like the Benish Chais family, like the Sassoon family, most notably, who hired Tamidei Chamim to teach their daughters Torah throughout their life. Uh, you have another famous Ashkenazi rabbi who also has roots in the United Kingdom. Uh, he wrote a famous book called Mikhtav Meliyahu. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler. Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, was hired by the Sassoon family to teach their daughter Flora Sassoon uh, Torah. And he spent a, a part of his life being her tutor. And she has letters to her from the Benish Chai, letters to her from Rabbi Yitzchak Nisim. Rabbi Yitzchak Nisim about her says that he needs to research the halakha about whether when he sees her next, he has to recite the blessing that one would recite on a Tamit Chacham of tremendous stature. A side point, but the life of Chachmei uh, Baghdad is something that, that would provide a lot of food for thought in today's Jewish community and the crises that the Jewish community sometimes creates for itself when it's ignorant of its own history. You have to ask a question. Why does he feel the need to seemingly brag about himself, say things that are not at all fitting into the context, when he could have just said, yes, I never say things that I did not hear from my rabbi. It appears to me with Hashem's help. That this phrase, that I never said something I did not hear from the mouth of my rabbi, you have to ask the question, is it really a, a sustainable way of life? Is it sustainable for a person to say, I will never teach Torah that I did not hear from my rabbi? Did you hear every single halakha in the world and every scenario in which that halakha could be applied? You heard your rabbi speak about all of them? 
ולפי מידתו זאת מוכח שאשתו משרי תשובה מפני רוב השואלים דת ותורה. And if he would continue with this unsustainable methodology, most of the Jews who would need to ask him questions, he would close the doors before asking them questions. אף על פי שהוא יש לאל ידו להשיב ונמצאת מידה זו קשה. דלקו בה כמה וכמה שואלי דת. דלקו בה כמה וכמה שואלי דת. מינינג, this is a serious problem. If a פוסק, a חכם, will never say something they didn't hear from their rabbi, what about the next person who comes and asks the question? And the question is not exactly the way you heard it from your rabbi. There's something a little different. And a person like Rabbi Lezeman Hukanus has the mental and, and capability as well as the halachic knowledge to judge new questions, to, to rule on new scenarios based on the information he already knows. So Rabbi Lezeman Hukanus, your whole stance of I won't say things that I did not hear from my rabbi. It's a very dangerous approach. Most of the people who are going to come ask you questions, you will not be able to answer them. Who agrees with this critique on Rabbi Leidzel's approach? Yeah, it's good. It's a good, it's, a good, uh, it's a good critique. Meaning, even if you say that you studied everything from your rabbi, but there are going to be unique scenarios which you didn't hear the answer. What's going to be then? Are you going to reject everyone? Yes. Can, can I just ask something? Please. Maybe that's not what he meant. Maybe he said that he would judge the, uh, in a way, he would answer all the questions as if his rabbanim were answering these questions. Not that he would, not re- he would repeat exactly what he had, but maybe he knew his rabbis to the point where he would almost could guess how they would answer the question, and therefore that's how he would answer. Maybe, that... maybe it's not like so literal. That's a very good point, meaning that would be wonderful. If that was what he's saying, I, mean, I only am going to answer them in the way in which my rabbi, well, you know, there's a tremendous amount of halachic literature on this question of, if I didn't hear something from my rabbi, not me, a person didn't hear something from their rabbi, but they know what their rabbi would say in this situation. And they know that nobody is going to accept their answer if they quote it in their own name, instead of saying it in their rabbi's name. Can they actually say, I heard this from my rabbi? I believe the, the Bach in Siman Reish Mem Bet, in Shulchan Aruch, the Bach or the Bet Yosef, one of them, I remember, on the sides of the two, one of them deals with this question and suggests that perhaps you can. You can say that you heard something that you really didn't hear because it's in the style, it's in the, the approach that your rabbi definitely would have shared if you're confident in that. The problem is that we're going to bring about three or four more stories where it's clear that Rabbi Eliezer Hukanus does not believe that. He literally doesn't say things unless he heard them from his rabbi. By the way, there are more extreme cases. You have a famous, um, two famous rabbis. Remember Shemayan Aftalion? Remember Shemayan Aftalion? What was unique about Shemayan Aftalion in terms of their family background? They were Gerim. They, they, were, they, were, they were Gerim. They converted to Judaism. And many, many, many Chachamim chose not to study Torah from them because this problem of racism, or I don't know if it's racism, but prejudice towards Gerim, stupid attitude that people, I don't want to study from my Ger. This existed always in Am Yisrael. Hillel was one of the few Chachamim who, had, who, who really didn't care. He wanted to learn Torah from the source. And he went and studied from Shemayin Aftalion. It's a famous story, if you remember, that when Hillel comes to a certain place and they have a question, Halakha, and nobody knows the answer to the question. Only Hillel knows the answer. And then they say, Hillel, how did you know the answer? He says, because I, unlike you, was not too arrogant to go study halakha from Shemayin Aftalion. 
and ultimately they make Shemaya and they, they make they appoint Hillel as the chief rabbi there of the Kira because he did Shimush by Shemaya and Aftalion. There's a Gemara in Masechet Eduyot, a Mishnah actually, which quotes Hillel. Hillel seemingly mispronounces a word in Hebrew. And when they ask him why he insists on mispronouncing that word, he says not only should a person only say the things that he heard from his rabbi, but he must even say them the way he heard it from his rabbi. The Rambam there has a fascinating commentary. Rashi has a different understanding of the sugya. There's a few other Rishonim that understand the sugya. Rambam writes that because they were Gerim, their pronunciation of Hebrew was influenced by the culture in which they came from. And they would pronounce Hebrew incorrectly in some instances. And Hillel was particular not just to repeat the teachings of his rabbis, but to repeat them in the exact wording and accent in which he heard them from his rabbis. By the way, in the book Nachalat Avot, this sets Rabbi Yosef Masas off entirely. How? Like he said, imagine if you had a rabbi and you would imitate him. Or you know somebody has a very thick accent in, in English and you imitate the way they say things. Most people are not going to be very thrilled with you. He's writing in Morocco. He says, you know, around here, around here, people might even kill you. They'll beat you up with their hands. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to imitate people. People don't find it very flattering. They say that imitation is the best term of flattery, but not all people really appreciate being imitated. And you really have to understand there why it's so important for Hillel to say words the way he heard them from his rabbi that leads to many other chachamim. But you find that it's not only Rabbi Eliezer. There are even more extreme understandings of only saying things I heard from my rabbi. Listen to what the Ben Yishchai says. So he told him three character traits that were very precious about himself. That nobody ever came to the Bet Midrash before me. That I never slept in the Bet Midrash. That I never left the Bet Midrash and there was still a person there. What's the purpose of sharing all these things? It's not there to brag, says the Ben Ishchai. He was trying to show you just how much he was present in the Ben Midrash. That he's saying, I literally lived in the Ben Midrash. Nobody ever got there before me. Nobody was there after me. I never slept in the Ben Midrash. Meaning, I was there. I, I, I was present at all moments. And because of that, I've heard every single halachic question that possibly could have been asked to my rabbis. Says the Ben Ishchai, I heard, I heard almost every halachic question in existence being asked to my rabbi multiple times, in multiple ways, in different scenarios. I've heard it all. And so you're saying, well, you're going to lose out. There's so many questions that people won't know the answers to because you didn't hear them asked to your rabbi. He says, no. Most of the questions in the world I already heard my rabbi be asked. And for the few of them that I didn't, okay, the world won't lose so much because I don't answer those questions. So here you have the Ben Chaim, not just explaining, but reinforcing that Rabbi Eliezer's stance, it's not just not dangerous, but he had learned so much from his rabbis that his plan was actually sustainable.
that because he heard thousands of questions in Halakha, that really there were very few questions that he had not heard asked before. And because of that, this approach was sustainable at least for Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukunus. By the way, please feel free to interrupt me at any time if there's something you want to ask or discuss about this. This next piece of Talmud, if you're going to interrupt, you have to interrupt. Yeah, sorry. Uh, um, did it, uh, after the, the story of the oven, sorry, I'm going back to the story of the oven, but just briefly. Didn't Rabbi Ezer got kicked out of, um, uh, of, uh, of the, like, uh, was it the Sanhedrin? Or I'm not sure, like, of the group he was, wasn't he kicked out? Of he was very... Yeah, he was very upset at Bechlan, the whole aftermath. Do you remember that his wife's name was... Anyone remember his wife's name? It's very popular in the Bukharian community, this name. Yeah? Ima Shalom. Ima Shalom. Very good. Ima Shalom was his wife's name. She was the sister of... Rabban Gamliel. And she would always make sure that her husband would never do Tachanunim, would never put his head down during Tachanunim. Because when a Chacham does Tachanunim, the things he prays for comes true. And she was upset that he was going to curse her brother and he would die because of the aftermath of the story. Uh, ultimately what happens is that one day she thinks it's Rosh Chodesh, not really Rosh Chodesh. Again, the commentaries there are numerous why she made the mistake. But she figured out, today he wasn't going to say Tachanunim, she didn't supervise his tefillah. And he put his head down and Rabban Gamliel dies as a, as a consequence here to this story. Yeah, there was a lot of, many negative things that happened after the story. Definitely. Yeah, so th- you wanted to... Like, uh, my point is that, like, since, um, since the, like, the, the story seems to clearly indicate that the Talmud doesn't go by Rabbi Elizar, so, like, so what if... Uh... So, so basically his claim that he only repeats what his teacher says probably doesn't go with the Talmud because the Talmud doesn't really go with Rabbi Eliezer anyway. Okay, that's a very good point. So you're trying to bring a proof from there that Rabbi Eliezer's approach was unique to him and was not intended to be studied for by anybody else. Right. That's very good. That's a good. Uh, that's a very good um, reading of that story. You should know that... that um, so that story has a lot of... Uh, a lot of things that come out from there. I'm going to bring up some more things about that. That's a, that's a good point. I had something I want to share with you right now. You reminded me of something. Rabbi Yosef Masas asks in his book, Nachalat Avot, if you want to study a tremendous amount of material of Rabbi Yosef Masas on the Talmud, his book on Prakavot really goes through every one of the Tanaim who speak in Prakavot, and he discusses a lot about their life, their history, the different... And through that, you're able to see the way Rabbi Yosef Masas reads many passages of Agadah. Rabbi Yosef Masas there, he asks, why was Rabbi Eliezer so adamant? Why was he so adamant that he was right? Meaning, maybe... Maybe he was wrong. Maybe all the rabbis are right. Why did he insist he was right? To the point where, you have to remember, according to Masas, he's, he's forcing these miracles. They're not real miracles. It's sleight of hand. But to the point where he's willing to manipulate the system of halakha. What makes him so sure that he's wrong? Why can't he consider that maybe they're right? 
Rabbi Yosef Masas blames this on Rabbi Eliezer's attitude of he never said anything he didn't hear from his rabbi. And he was positive that he heard this from Abani Yochanan ben Zakai. And because of that, I don't care what you're going to do. I don't care what you're going to say. I don't care how many of you there are. I know what I heard from my rabbi and he's right. Now some of the Chachmei Yisrael that he's arguing with also heard things from his rabbi. And Rabbi Yosem Masas, maybe, maybe his rabbi took it back. Maybe Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukunus didn't understand that his rabbi changed his mind. He was not willing to accept this, this thought that his rabbi took something back. From what he heard from his rabbi was misinai mamash. That's the way he viewed it. And this is a, an attitude of Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukanus across the board. Let's look at the next source. Because Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukanus clearly doesn't seem to think this only applies to him. This is another halakha directly tied into this one. I have a shiur on this we did recently, in which you, in one of the Rambam classes that we did, recently we discussed about teaching halakha in front of one's rabbi. Masechet Eruvin, source 4. V'tamid achad hayalo, l'rabi Eliezer. There was one student of Rabbi Eliezer, shehora halakha b'fanav, who ruled halakha in front of him. Amar Rabbi Eliezer l'ima shalom ishto. Rabbi Eliezer told ima shalom his wife, I'll be surprised if this guy will live till the end of the year. And he did not live till the end of the year. Amalo, she tells him, Neviata? Are you a prophet? I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. But this is what I have received in tradition. Anybody who rules on a halakha in the presence of his rabbi is liable for the death penalty. So this is a little bit different. This is not exactly don't say halakha you didn't hear from your rabbi, but this is you cannot share any new halakha in front of your rabbi. And Maran in the Shukhanu dedicates an entire section to which halakhot you're allowed to teach in front of your rabbi. That's why this concept of... Did I freeze? Can you hear me? Yeah, that's why this concept of hasmacha exists, why we give ordination to people, yore, yore, it's giving permission for a student to rule on areas of halakha. And this brings us to story number five. The truth is that this story is a very difficult story. Okay, let's do it. Quickly. There was a story that happened. Rabbi Yosef ben Durmaskit went to go greet Rabbi Lazar and Lod. He told him, What novel teaching was taught in the Bede Midrash today? Okay, this is a story about, about Amon and Moab, and there's a halakha here, that's why the Gemara even mentions the story in context. Rabbi Lazar said to him in anger, Yoseh, extend your hands and catch your eyes which are about to come out of their sockets. He extended his hands and caught his eyes. Obviously the story is not intended to be taken literally, but something here happens. Bachar Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Lazar cries. 
אמר לו לך אמור להם אל תחושו למניינכם. Do not be concerned with your counting. כך מקובלני מרבן יוחנן בן זכאי, this is what I heard from רבן יוחנן בן זכאי, ששמע מרבו, ורבו מרבו, הלכתה למשה מסיני. רבן יוחנן בן זכאי, heard from his rabbi, you heard from his rabbi, you heard from משה רבינו על הר סיני. This story here was meant to illustrate a very quick point that the tradition of רבן יוחנן בן זכאי was considered clear and pure all the way back to משה רבינו על הר סיני. Let's skip source 6 for right now. And jump to source 8. In 6 and 7, I really wanted to show you that there is room for innovation in halakha. This is the opposite of Ubi Eliezer. Ben Hukanus, it's the approach of uh, other chachamim. Here, and specifically, I was mentioning the teachings of Ubi Yoshua, who is the other colleague in this time period. But let's jump for a minute to source 8. Masechet Avot. The Mishnah in Masechet Avot says, Chamisha Talmidim Hayulo Lerabban Yochanan Ben Zakai. There were five students of Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakai. Veluhen, and these were them. Rabbi Eliezer Ben Hukanus, Rabbi Yoshua Ben Chanania, Rabbi Yosea Kohen, Rabbi Shimon Ben Netanel, Rabbi Lazar Ben Arach. You should know many new sorot here don't have the word Rabbi before every one of them. Meaning, it's not usual that the rabbi would speak to his students with the title Ribi. There are a few commentaries that suggest that either it was recorded with the word, that it's just a mistake, that's the first, it just, you know, someone added in those words Ribi. Some suggest that no, because we have an obligation to call them Ribi, so we put in the words Ribi, or that was written down with the word Ribi. Some say that sometimes when a rabbi is trying to make his students, you know, he's speaking to him endearingly, he'll say, you know, Arapel is calling me Rabbi Onatan. He doesn't have any obligation to call me Rabbi, but it's a, it's a term of endearment. For whatever reason, I, those words are in there in the editions of most of the Mishnayot that we have. I told you something at the beginning of today's shiur about Rabban Yochanan Zakai and his yeshiva from Avod Rabbi Natan. How many students did Rabban Yochanan Zakai have? Thousands. That's what I said at the beginning of the shiur. There are thousands of students of Rabbi Yochanan So why does it say there were five Talmidim of Rabbi Yochanan Zakai? Who are these people? What's special? They're the famous ones. Okay, that's that's that could be true. Also, the famous ones. There's an interesting word here. Chamisha Talmidim Hayulo LeRabban Yochanan Ben Zakai. How could you have said this more concisely in Hebrew? Ima? Which word could you get rid of here? In the sentence, Chamisha Talmidim Hayulo Larabban Yochanan Ben Zakai. Rabbanit, you want to take a guess here? Yeah, you don't need the word lo. You could have just said, Hayulo Larabban Yochanan. Very good. You could just say, Chamisha Talmidim Hayulo Larabban Yochanan Ben Zakai. There were five students of Rabbanu Chaim Zakai. Here it says Hayu Lo. They were his students. There's something special about these students. Rabbi Yosef Masas. By the way, this book, I, I, for those of you who are able to handle Hebrew, I cannot recommend enough uh, the books of Rabbi Yosef Masas. But this one in particular has been recently been printed and is is available in Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi Yosef Masas suggests one that these five students stood out from the others. There are two types of students by Tamir Chaim. 
there are those who studied by a Tamikham, and they also studied by many other Tamikhamim. So, yeah, I studied by this rabbi, but he's not my rabbi per se. And when they teach Torah, they don't always teach things from that rabbi. It's a, you know, a collection of different teachings in different places. Recently, on our, on our forum online, there was a question about putting tzitzit out of one's pants or not. And in there, they asked me what the opinion of Arab Peretz was. I didn't tell you what you should do. But I'll tell you, Arab Peretz's opinion is adamant that one should wear their tzitzit out. And everybody should do that. And that we, the students of Arab Peretz, put our tzitzit out. Even though many other Sephardim, most notably Rabbi Rabbi Yosef, were very much against this custom. And even called it an Ashkenazi custom or whatever else would happen from there. The Ashkenazim, like the Mishnah Bu'al, were very adamant that the, those who don't do this are considered desecrators of a mitzvah. It's a really heated conversation for a few strings coming out of your pants or not. But uh, this, this question was asked and I answered. And somebody there commented, okay, you know, the, the good rabbi said what he said, but just so you know, there are many, many students of Arapheret who wear their tzitziot in. And all I wrote was a simple sentence of, let's just make a differentiation between those who studied by Harapheret and those who are students of Harapheret. And that's all that needs to be said. There are many people. Baruch Hashem, the Shiva has hundreds of graduates around the world. I think we're hitting the number 250 graduates today around the world. And there are rabbis with posts. That doesn't mean that all of them are Talmidim of Harapheret. I don't expect them all to be either. Maybe that's not their approach, it's not their style. But from those of us who, whatever Harapheret's rules, that's the approach that we take in Halakha, there are not so many of us. In fact, there are very few of us. And, and that's the first step. These were five students who were very unique. And that they were the students of, of Rabbi Yechon Bezakai. They were not just another group of people who studied there. The second is that there are some types of people who learn Torah from Achacham. They come to listen to the class, to listen to the Torah, and then that's all they want to take. They don't take anything else from the Chacham. So there are people who are brilliant Torah scholars. They, they extracted Torah from a person, but they left their personality behind. So for example, they'll learn the Torah from a person, but not any of the, the character traits, not any of the, the, the midot, the derech eretz of that person. There's a story, it's a rare source for me to quote, but it just came to mind. There's a few books written by Rabbi Herschel Schachter, who's in New York. He's a rabbi at Yeshiva University. There's a student of Rabbi Soloveitchik, and he has a book, I don't know, Nefesh Harab, a few books in a, in a series about Rabbi Soloveitchik. I once was reading through these books, and then they told a story about Rabbi Soloveitchik when he would give his Talmud classes or his Rambam classes, that there were sometimes standing room only. You know, they're talking about a huge auditorium, and people would literally stand in the room for, sometimes these classes were three or four hours. And there was no room to sit. If you know a little about Rav Soloveitchik, in his youth, he studied in a, in a Chabad cheder. I don't know if anyone knows this a little fact about Rav Soloveitchik. Um, and, you know, when his grandfather, the famous story of his grandfather, coming to the yeshiva to check on him, and he had to quickly cover up that he was studying some book of Hasidut, because that wouldn't have gone over very well in the Soloveitchik dynasty. And at a certain point in his life, he wanted to teach Parashat HaShavuah, based on the Hasidic insights of the first Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, and he decided to announce a class at Yeshiva University that he was going to be giving during lunchtime, a class on, uh, on uh, Hasidut in Parashat HaShavua. And Rav Herschel Shachter said that he came, and maybe one or two other people came to the class, and it was three people, and in a few weeks the class was canceled. And when he asked Rav Soloveitchik about the class, Rav Soloveitchik told him the following sentence. 
He said, my students, they want my brain. But none of them want my heart. He said, I don't want to just give my brain. I also want to give my heart. And I think that this sentiment is one that is felt here. That Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai has more to give than just his Torah. There's a personality that is Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai did some tremendous things, not just in his halachic legacy, but in his approach to Judaism. These were the five Talmidim who didn't just extract the Torah and keep moving from Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, but they were the ones who truly understood Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai and wanted to emulate him. Says Rabbi Yosef Masas, there are two types of Talmidim. The type of person where you have to ask them, who is your rabbi? The type of person that when you see them, you could already tell who their rabbi is. Nikar alam, says Rabbi Yosef Masaz. That this person studied from that person. He lists three or four other reasons for why these were special Talmidim as opposed to the other ones. But I don't want to get stuck on this point. So maybe, maybe though, we can begin to understand that Rabbi Eliezer ben Hulkanus' approach of only saying things he heard from his rabbi wasn't born in a vacuum. It was born out of a certain type of relationship that from thousands of students that came to Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, these were the five that Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai considered my students. They are the ones who know what I say. And perhaps, I'm suggesting, perhaps that's where this ideology of I will never say something I didn't hear from my rabbi comes to Rabbi Elezer This is where it's born into. Now he begins to say about his students all kinds of positive character traits. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus, Bor Sud Sheinom Abed Tipa, is like a plastered well. Now, sure, many of the books say Bor Seed or Bor Side, but really that's not correct. The many of the Rishonim already jump Bor Sud. It's not a plastered well. It's not a well that is made of plaster. That doesn't help anybody. But a well that has been plastered. Why do you plaster a well? Anyone here have a swimming pool at home, or been to a? Out. Oh, very good. My mother has a swimming pool at her home. And uh, it's time for it to get replastered. But that's like uh, 30,000 pounds of work. So uh, the, the, the plaster on the side of the pool, it holds the water from being absorbed into the dirt. Or else it's good for nothing. It's just a hole in the ground. You're going to keep filling it up and it's going to keep draining itself out. So you have to plaster the well. is my student who retains everything and doesn't lose one drop of learning. And then he goes to list his other Talmudim and what they're good at. He goes to them. And then he writes something fascinating. He used to say, If all of the Chachamim of the Jewish people were on a, on a scale, is going to be on the other side. He will weigh everyone, meaning he's more important than all of them. A well, a cistern, a plastered, well plastered cistern that doesn't lose a drop. There's a famous comment here, Prakavot. Rabishmuel de Osida, Ozida, how do you pronounce the last name exactly? I'm not certain. He wrote a book called Midrash Shemuel. It's a very well-quoted commentary on Perkevot. And he has a fascinating insight onto this compliment that is given to Rebidez ben Is it really a good thing that he's saying about him? Is it really a compliment? Velinira, it appears to me in Source 9. Shema she'amar, that which he said, Sheno me'abed tipa, that he doesn't lose a drop, 
דנירים דברים מיותרים. It seems like a useless thing to say. כי ידוע הוא שבור סוד אינו מאבד דיבה. Everyone knows that a well-plastered cistern doesn't lose a drop. Why don't you just say, he's like a well-plastered cistern, not like one that doesn't lose a drop. וידי שיאמר אליעזר בן הורקנוס, בור סוד. He's just a well-plastered cistern. אמנם בת, in the bottom of page 7, in the bold, אמנם הכוונה ביות שהבור סוד, יש בו חדה לטבעותה וחדה page 8 at the top לרעותה. This is really a half a compliment and half not a compliment. When you call somebody a well-plastered cistern, that's not necessarily a good thing. Because its waters are not so sweet and fresh. Like the, well, uh, like the water that comes from a flowing water source. Have you ever smelled or drank well water before? It's clean. You, you, you can drink it, but it's not a delightful smelling thing or tasting thing. It's, it's essentially um, stale water. It's been held in a container. These are contained waters. And furthermore, that they're even worse than fresh water because you have that bad flavor of the plaster that's in them. And we have to say that the waters of Rabbi Eliezer Mahukanus were sweet and they were pleasant and they were vibrant. And many great scholars drank from the well of Rabbi Eliezer Mahukanus, meaning studied from him. Rabbi Akiva, the Chaverav, and his colleagues. Shayu Talmidav, that they were his students. There's another problem with a well. The, the plaster well never gets new water. It never has chidushim. It never has anything innovative because it only contains that which was put into it. Rabbi Dezeb is the opposite of innovative halakha. He just can tell you the things he heard from his rabbi. V'i afshar lomar, says the Midrash Mu'ed, you cannot say, shehu ayad dome lebor b'chol devarav. You therefore cannot say that Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukanus was a well in all his ways. Shebehechach chidesh halachot harbe misichlo v'iuno. You must say that Rabbi Eliezer made innovated halachot from his own logic, his own intellect. That his well continued to be full of water on its own. And you cannot say that he is worse than any of the other Chachamim in terms of his innovation, even if he's not as great as Rabbi Lazar ben Arach, like the Mishnah previously mentioned. And that's why the Mishnah says he was like a well-plastered cistern that doesn't lose a drop. To tell you he's not similar to a well in any other way. Aside from that, he does not lose a drop. But it's obvious that the rest of his Torah was vibrant and fresh and full of life. And his students, Rabbi Akiva and all the other students will prove to you that Rabbi Eliezer Manhukunus is a dynamic scholar. 
And he says in the next bold section, Yesh tarte. There's two sides to Limud Torah. Sur mera ve'asetov. Leave evil and do that which is good. Uv'limud ha-Torah, and in studying Torah, tarte. There's two approaches to that. Meaning when you do a mitzvah, you, you, aside from leaving the averot, you also have to do good actions. You can't do good actions while you're doing averot. You don't do averot while you do good actions. You have to separate yourself from bad and then do good. With limut Torah, there's something else. Hem ukme girsa vegam liot mevinum chadesh batoramidato. You have to be able to do two things simultaneously. You have to be able to maintain the tradition that came before you. You must be loyal, ukme girsa, to be meticulous about the things that you heard and you studied that came before you. But also at the same time, to not hold back your own innovations and contributions into Halakha. And then you go into Tamud Bavli Masechet Berachot, where Rabbi Eliezer bunkers down on his stance. And he says, Rabbi Eliezer, Omer, Rabbi Eliezer says, Someone who prays behind his rabbi, Someone who says hello to his rabbi, returns hello to his rabbi, Someone who argues with his rabbi's yeshiva, that's an interesting uh, idea. What does that mean? A person who says something he didn't hear from his rabbi causes for the Shekhinah to remove itself from the Jewish people. So what is it, Rabbi Are you a Mechadesh or you're not a Mechadesh? Are you an innovator? Are you not an innovator? And to this you can only find one answer. You have to look, like Hugo mentioned in the beginning of the shul. You have to look, what do the poskim say? At the end of the day, when Rambam walks away from this Gemara, when Maran walks away from this Gemara, what do they say? What do they learn from Ibn Ulkanus? And they learn the following thing. Would this allow me to end the shul today? In sources 11, 12, and 13, the Rambam writes, You should never say something you did not hear from your rabbi. Ad sheyazkir shem omo. Until you mention who you heard it from. Says the case of Mishneh, that's Maran Rabbi Yosef Cairo's commentary on the Rambam in source 12. What does it mean? This is the teaching of Rabbi Yezer in Masech Berachot. Here there's a whole different problem. When I quote something, Am I taking credit for something that someone else said? You're not allowed to do that. Our rabbis tell us that you always have to give credit to the person who you heard something from. Who do we learn this from? Who taught us that That somebody who mentioned something in the name of the person, the original person who said it, brings redemption to the world? Who taught us this halakha? Very good. Esther HaMalka, Queen Esther. Why? What does Queen Esther do? She's a student of Rabbi Eliezer and Hukanut. Not really. What does she do? What does she say? Every time she speaks, she says, This is what I was told by Mordechai. This is what I heard from Mordechai. This is what Mordechai told me to do. Why are you obsessed with saying Mordechai? Just tell me what you need to say. Rabbi learned from here. That someone who quotes things in the name of the person who said it brings redemption to the world. Here, Maran says, when a Talmid, Muvhak, a real student of somebody speaks, you can just assume that everything they said they heard from their rabbi. 
any halacha they teach, they heard from their rabbi. Any Torah they teach, they heard from their rabbi. And anything they didn't hear from their rabbi, they'll give you, they'll tell you, either I heard it from somebody else. Or they'll say, I, it's my own thought on the parashat, my own thought on halacha. And that's how Maran codifies this halacha. If you're going to open now a Shulchan Aruch to section 242, Resh Membet, in halacha 24 in Yoredea, Maran writes the exact same words as the Rambam. Lo yomar davar shloshama mirabo, a person should not say a halacha that they heard from the rabbi, ad shiaskir until, until he mentions who he did hear it from. And I think, I think that here is the value in this teaching, and it's what we've discussed in the past. Of course you can innovate. You must innovate. Of course you have to share halachot. But there's truth in what we've all been thinking, which is you can't become stagnant like a well whose water is not fresh and water is not clean. On the other hand, you can't lose a drop. You cannot lose Torah or mitzvot because of your desire to innovate. But you also can't get stuck in one way of understanding something because sometimes there needs to be innovation. Maran and the Rambam ultimately try to create some balance here in the world of halakha. And I wish that you look over those two gemarot that I skipped where the rabbis assert, Rabbi Yoshua asserts there, and Bet Midrash below chidush. There's no such thing as a house of study that has no chidush. Maybe that's a good shiur for another time to discuss what does that mean? What does it mean there's no such thing as a house of study that has no chidush? You know, sometimes I feel this. I don't mean to offend anybody because I'm offending myself too. One of the first things I noticed when I came to America from Israel was how stagnant the Jewish conversations in this country were. And I'm not saying that I'm better than anybody. I mean, I'm, I'm living here, so I made this choice. And I don't know how it is in the UK, and I don't know how it is in other places, but there was something radical in Israel where Judaism was, you know, there's many crazy things about Judaism in Israel. I'm not here to tell you that that's perfect either. There's some, some things that I dealt with there that I never in my life would have to deal with here. And just the fact that the things that I do as a rabbi, if it's marriage or conversion, or, that those things could be federal crimes in a modern state of Israel because it's not done with the right mafia. You know, that's a, a whole different the problem with religion that doesn't exist here at least. You in the UK have a little, a little taste of what that's like. Uh, but when we deal with, with Judaism, the conversations, they're old. You look at the books that come out of Israel. Books in Torah, I'm talking about... I'm, I'm part of a group, the National Library of Israel. Every, every day I get 30, 40 books that are being printed. Let's say I wouldn't buy 39 of the 40 that are printed every day. But you look at them and you say, the power of Chidush exists. People are being Mechadesh. Albeit, they don't come from all the communities. There are definitely communities in Israel who wouldn't know a Chidush if it looked at them in the face. They, they have no ability to think creatively about Judaism. But you have Chachamim, you have Yeshivot, you have uh, groups of people, communities that live in a Judaism that is alive. And then when I came here, I walked right into a wall. I, I can't, things that were so easily said in Israel, the things that were so simple to say in a community of people who were Torah scholars, who had, who had the ability to think about Torah in ways that even they didn't agree with, but at least they could think about Torah in that way. The moment I uttered them here, I mean, listen, I was blacklisted way before I was blacklisted, but it was, it was like right on the, the black, right away you, you met resistance. You cannot say new things. You cannot change the status quo. You cannot ask those kind of questions. You cannot push people into directions that we don't approve of. And I'm talking about everybody all across the board. And it's a very, very scary thing when we look 
as a stale pit of water. Instead of as a pit of water that retained everything that came before, but also added fresh water to that, that same body of water, that same source of life that created a whole generation of scholarship like Rabbi Akiva. And it would be a mistake. It would be a mistake to walk away from the legacy of Rabbi Elizabeth and Hokanos and say, oh, that's it. Anything we didn't hear from the generation before us, tradition, we just can't do. There's nothing we can do. Our hands are tied. On the other hand, we have to say that the power of innovation, the flexibility of halakha, all of the rabbis we mentioned, if it's Rabbi Uziel, if it's Rabbi Yosef Masas, or Rabbi Chaim David Halavi. What did Rabbi Chaim David Halavi write in this packet that we just had? The words that he used on page 4, we need courage, l'chadesh, to innovate. L'amitah shel Torah, as long as it's within the truth of Torah. B'nemanut mukhletet l'gufei halakha, with absolute loyalty to the body of halakha, both the written and the tradition. Only then, we're within, with respect to that which was. With absolute loyalty to the Torah which is written, are we able to innovate. That takes a lot more work. But it's not impossible. And it's what our generation is tasked with. It's not about how can we market Judaism better. I've been speaking about this a lot recently. It's not about how we turn Torah into something cool or hip or fun. Or I don't know, it's not the way that you're going to get Torah out there. It's by realizing that the Torah doesn't work for people. Because some people have allowed the Torah to become stagnant. To become stale. To become static. And instead we have to transform the Torah back into what it was meant to be. Those who cling on to the Torah, of, of, of the Torah are living, they're alive. That's a Torah of life. Her ways are pleasant, her pathways are peaceful. We have to show Am Israel. The Torah is dynamic. The Torah can engage you. The Torah is worth looking into. Keep turning over the Torah. Don't look for foreign foreign things to, to make your life more beautiful. In the Torah itself, contain the secrets of everything. You just have to have the right tools. You have to know how to look at it, how to use it, how to work with it. May we, this group here, be the beginning of a change. A change that can show Am Yisrael, we can be just as traditional. I hate that word. We can be just as loyal to Torah mitzvot as Rabbi Eliezer ben Urkanus and still ask the question of Rabbi Yoshua. It's impossible to say that there exists a Ben Midrash which does not have in it the creative power of innovation. We must do both. Be loyal to the Torah. Be loyalists who are also creative innovators. Bezat Hashem, may HaKadosh Baruch guide us on that path of Amitash the Torah, of the truth of Torah. Bezat Hashem.